Hello, good morning. How's everyone doing? Rousing crew this morning. Hey, before we start anything, I would like to not just only draw attention to this wonderful human being, but also just congratulate Linda is back and she's rocking. Oh, we're so glad you're back. Um, well, first of all, uh, welcome. My name is Josh. This is Resonate. Uh, that's Omid, the worship leader. That was Harrison, uh, who was singing, and that was Bill, who was killing it on the cajon. So once again, thank you for that. Um, man, I'm just I'm so excited about what we're going to be talking about this morning, and even more than that, uh, I'm really excited because Easter is on the verge of being here. And uh, when you work in the church world like I do, like this has just been a looming date, so I want to get it over with. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. It's going to be a party. So basically. What we're going to do on Easter, uh, including possibly Omid in a bunny suit, we're still looking through the, lo the logistics of that, if you can actually play piano in a bunny suit or not. Um, a lot of research. A lot of research. <laughs> our yeah, R&D department is really going hard. Uh, we're going to have uh, mimosas here. We're going to have food. We're gonna, like, we want to create an intentional space here for us to linger and hang out. We recognize that Easter's a big brunch day, so if you have plans, that's awesome. Uh, we want to kind of keep you here as long as we can, just in, in a fun way. Uh, and if you don't have plans, this is really important, and this is kind of the unique like, thing about being a church of this size, is uh, Chelsea and I actually want to host anyone who doesn't have plans after Easter at our place for a little Easter brunch shindig thing. So our place is open. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can either come talk to me or Chelsea or Bobby, um, and they can tell you uh, where I live. <laughs> uh, so, good. Uh, this morning, we're talking about questions, and more importantly, that there's such a thing as a bad question. There are a lot of teachers in this room, and the sort of the motto of a teacher is there's no such thing as a bad question, and today, I'm going to attempt to prove that wrong, uh, and to do that, I'm going to talk about Ben and Jerry's, I'm going to talk about a Zen word called moo, and I'm going to talk about um, what Jesus has to say about all this. So let me, let me pray, and then we'll get into that. Lord... I'm so grateful for this space, and as we talk about uh, Resonate in three parts, the series that we've been in, uh, we've gone through what it means to be a church for people that don't have it all figured out and why that's okay, and then we went through the stuff that we do have figured out, and we talked about amazing things, all about you, about kingdom, grace, and goodness, and in this uh, iteration, the last part, part three, Resonate in three parts, we're going through what it means to be a church that is really dedicated to the fact that no matter who you are or what you have done, or who you, what you think you might have done, uh, you are welcome and fully embraced in this space. And I think that is such a unique thing. And Lord, it's a challenging thing. So I pray for our church as we, as we embrace this and we walk into this fully, would you give us a grace in that and would you just walk with us? Amen. Uh, so in Jesus' time, uh, there were these guys called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these were kind of the religious like guru dudes at that point. And they honestly, they get a bad rap. Most of the time when I talk about them up here, most of the time when we read about them, we read about them in like a negative way. Like, oh, there's those Pharisees and those Sadducees. Jesus is really going to give it to them. Uh, but actually, like, they were just kind of in this moment in history having like what could be attributed to like a bad hair day. Like, they're not, <laughs> they weren't bad people. They were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. They had trained their entire lives in this one religious way. And when Jesus comes and starts stirring things up and saying, no, 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 it's actually like this, it's actually like this, and it actually starts making like sense, it starts driving them crazy because, no, 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 I've been taught my entire life that this is the way it's supposed to be. And when Jesus shows up and starts mixing that up, there's a, there's a learning curve. Right? It's, it's tough for them to get on track and on board with what Jesus is saying. So we're going to read a story later on about how 
Jesus kind of carefully cares for them, and he isn't always just railing against them. He's caring in the way that he's leading them towards a new reality or a new way of thinking. But what would happen is the religious types uh, weren't into that, so they would try and trick him and trap him with educated questions that they thought a carpenter would never be able to answer. And they were probably right, but the crazy thing that Jesus does with questions uh, and the way that he uses them is so unique and profound that they would often walk away going like, dang, what did he just say? And I'm going to have to chew on that, and then we've been chewing on it for 2,000 years. So it, it was big, big stuff. But what I want to unpack is what a question is, why they're important, and why Jesus used them uh, so often. And to do that, I'm going to start with a story about Ben and Jerry's. So we that lovely slide so it looks like I'm in a Ben and Jerry's. Perfect. <laughs> uh, this is a Ben and Jerry's factory, and it's in uh, Vermont. My grandparents have a home in Vermont, and I spent my summers as a kid and still do, like, going over there and hanging out, and they have, like, a lake house, and it's just a blast. But as a child, the lake house was, like, I didn't even want to go near the lake because I knew that this, like, was nearby. It was about an hour's drive away, but for a 10-year-old child, it was, like, a religious pilgrimage. Like, this was Mecca, and you were going to go, and you got to go on this factory tour. It was fantastic. So... We went, my whole family went, we go through the tour, you get to see how every little part of the ice cream is made, which just for a child is just like building anticipation, like just give me that ice cream. Uh, and you're promised ice cream at the end of the tour, and so you endure this lady talking about like milk and cows and whatever. Uh, and you get to the end of the tour, and a really interesting thing happens at the end of the tour. The tour guide uh, takes you to the side, and there's like a group of 25 of us or so. Uh, and in this particular instance, the tour guide explained to us that if we could ask a question, that would stump this said tour guide, that she could not answer about Ben and Jerry's or about the factory tour that we just went on, she pulled out this glorious pint of chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream and said, this can be yours if you can stump me, right? So let's do the math here. That's a pint. It's an hour's drive. I've just doubled my ice cream intake. That bad boy has to be consumed on premises. So <laughs> I'm really, really excited about this pint. She takes it out, and someone comes forth with the first question, and it's like child's play. Like She, hit, she knocks it out of the park. Done. Uh, and then I get this very strange feeling like, oh, I might have it. And I raise my little hand, I'm 10 years old, and puka shell necklace, bowl cut, and <laughs> raise my little hand, and I raise it real high, because I know I've got this. And uh, she calls on me, and the room goes silent, obviously giving me the stage. So I approach and I say this ridiculous question. I ask, how many chocolate chips are in a container of chocolate chip cookie dough? And the room, you could like feel the energy just get sucked out of the room. Like, oh great, this kid, right? Like, are you serious? There's, I knew it was a ridiculous question. I knew I was cheating the system, and I still got the ice cream. Like, she had to reluctantly kind of go like, well, fine, that's the end of the tour. Everybody around is like, like just peeved because they're like, I don't get to even ask a question anymore. Like, this kid just like sidelined us. So I got the ice cream, and I also got a valuable lesson, because you had to linger with those 25 people after that, and they were all just glaring at me. But the valuable lesson is that there is such thing as a bad question. Some questions, not like my question, some questions have the ability to take us on a journey, and other questions just have the ability to squash a journey. Some, some questions open us up to better and bigger things. They elicit wise information. And some questions just like fall flat, and they're not helpful. And I think that's the same for our faith. We get caught up in church with questions that we should not be wasting our time on. There's bigger things at stake. Grace is bigger. God is bigger. Uh, and so the, in the Zen traditions, where we get to our, uh, our fancy word here, do we have that word, mu? 
There it is, Moo. So not like what a cow does, uh, but it is Ben and Jerry, so that kind of makes sense. Uh, Moo is a Zen word that comes from a, a Buddhist story called Chow Chow's Dog. So we don't have anything that good in scripture. That name is brilliant, so let's just give credit where credit is due. But uh, it comes from a story called Chow Chow's Dog, and Chow Chow was this uh, famous Zen teacher. And uh, one day, one of his students walks up to him and he says, Master, uh, does the dog have a Buddha nature? And this Chow Chow guy in the most like Zen-like, amazing, incredible, artful response simply says, no. <laughs> Uh, but not really no, he says mu, which mu can be translated as no, but it actually means has not. As in like that question has not, so no answer that I can give you will have anything anyway. Unask that question, mu, figure out a different way to pose your question because anything I'm gonna answer to that is not going to be helpful, mu. We don't have anything like that in the Christian tradition, but I wish that we could use that so badly. And I'm going to claim it for us right now in things that just are a waste of our time and our resources as a church. We need to learn where to declare moo. That same puka shell necklace kid reams his ugly bullheaded like, head in my life all the time in my Christian faith because there are still questions that I am bringing to the room that are sucking the life out of the room. What ways do we need to look at the church and declare moo? Like, unask that question. Figure out a different approach, a different way to do it. But to do that, we're actually going to have to look at what a question is uh, and what constitutes a good and a bad one. So first, a definition. Questions are a sentence worded or expressed as to elicit information. So they're kind of they're the vehicle of our language. They're they're what we they're what first dates are all about, right? Like if we don't have good questions on a first date, that's going to fall real real flat, real real quick. If you don't have questions, you're either going to sit across from one or two types of people: one who's talking just about themselves and does not care about you at all, or two someone who has had, like nothing to say anyway, and both just swipe left. It's not important. Moo. Um, <laughs> linguists tell us that uh, questions actually do a few things. This is how cool they are. So like these are the, in the English language at least, this is what questions do. So questions elicit information. Number two, questions inspire people to discover something new, to unearth new knowledge. Questions also persuade. Questions stimulate thought and questions forge intimacy. So intimacy is really interesting because if you think back to the beginning of any of your relationships, maybe that's coffee with a friend or maybe that's like a first date scenario, if you're hanging out for the first time, you kind of have to ask questions back and forth. And this creates this like really quick and, and like fast firing back and forth of info that draws us deeper in relationship to each other. That's why there's that like feeling of infatuation in the beginning of a relationship that really isn't like love, but it's infatuation. And it's infatuation because our brains are literally like high off of these questions. We're like, man, I am like digging in the hills of this person's life and I'm finding pure gold here. This is incredible. And you just keep firing back and forth. But that's only when the questions are actually good. So what makes a good question? And as I researched this this week, uh, I, I got to go to the source of one of my favorite things. So I, anybody in here listen to podcasts and podcast fans? I'm like, I'm constantly ab like just absorbing and listening to all sorts of podcasts, every podcast I can get my hands on. And my favorite ones are long form interview podcasts. So that's something like Mark Marin kind of brought back. But there's tons and tons of podcasts on basically anything you want. You could find a long form interview on like, this Elton John piano, for instance. Whatever you want to find, you're going to be able to find. 
Uh, and so I, I listened to a lot of them, and I noticed that like if someone is going on like a press tour, so maybe there's a new movie, or they've got a new book out, or uh, some sort of new idea, uh, they'll start going to all of these different podcasts. And on my podcast, I'll see the same person on like three different ones. And what's really fascinating about that is when you listen to them, there are some interviews, and it's like the same questions, but there are some interviews that go extraordinarily well, and they're engaging, and you want to listen to the whole thing. And then there are other ones where you're like, this is the same premise, the same thing, but it's falling completely flat. And what I learned is like it's 100% on the host whether that interview crashes and burns or flies. There's an art to this interview thing. There's an art to questioning, and good questions are a part of that. Mark Pachter is a cultural historian. He works at the Smithsonian. And uh, he did this unbelievable uh, thing where he gathered together, he works for the National Portrait Society, which is literally like they would like, do portraits of famous Americans back in the day, like paint them, and they would stand there for hours. And uh, he realized like, no one's signing up for these portraits anymore, right? We've got pictures. How can we accurately paint the picture of a person without using paint, without using like, any canvases or anything like that? And what he found was like, interviews and conversations that we can keep are probably the best way to hold on to the essence of these people. So he went and he sought after, like, uh, there were a couple rules. They had to be above the age of 60, and then they had to be an American, because it's for the Smithsonian. Uh, so he interviewed all these, like, fascinating, fascinating, high-profile people. And what he said was, like, each and every one of these interviews, he would find one question. Like, at one point in the interview, it would, like, snake and navigate over, and he would find this one question that their face would just light up. And he said, this is the question, and there's, like, there's one question like this for all of us that we are longing to be asked, like our entire lives. And it's different for all of us, but he would kind of snake his way through and find what it was, and then once he was able to ask that question, he said, I might as well just like let the boat go. Like It was just, they took it over, right? And it was engaging, and it was fascinating, because these people really cared about what they were talking about. And he said his key... Uh, tool in finding that question, in finding that thing that was going to unlock this person, was empathy. So he said, if an interviewer does not care deeply for the person that they are interviewing and really care about what the answer is, then that interview is going to fall flat. And we know that. Like, if we're having a conversation, we're kind of casually like, how's it doing? What's going on? Like, those questions move. They're bad, right? And it, it's, it's, it's just a, like a lengthy conversation that we don't really need to have, but when we're empathetic and we place ourselves in the shoes of the person that we're talking to, when we're not looking past them, but we're looking right at them and we're listening and engaging, that's when good questions are asked. If you think about it, if I ask you, uh, are you having a good day? That's a terrible question <laughs> because I've already led you down the path, right? I've already said, are you having a good day? So like, if you don't say yes, it's gonna be awkward. Uh, and you could, you could either say yes or no, right? There's really no other response to that. Maybe, maybe, but like, I don't know how it would be a maybe, but yes or no. However, if I ask you, how's your day going, that creates space. There's almost a level of trust that I'm going like, I trust you with your answer, and I want to hear whatever you're going to lay out for me. How's your day? Like You have the freedom and the choice to pick anything within that spectrum. You can tell me a story. You can talk my ear off. Uh, you, could, you could say yes or no, which would be the incorrect answer. In that case, move to your answer. But like, it leaves space and it trusts. And when Jesus asks good questions, he always leaves space for trust. For instance, here's a poor question, then I'll, I'll give you a good question. A very poor question that's crept its way into church life and has become at the center of it in a lot of cases is, where will you go after you die? 
That is not a good question. <laughs> it's a very scary question to a person on the street, but this used to be a very effective way of getting people to kind of sign on to Christianity. Like, do you know where you're going to die after? Do you know where you're going to go after this? And you're like, no, sign me up, insurance plan, check. It's a poor question. Here's a better question. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? And here's a shocker to a lot of us long-term Christians in the room. Jesus asked the latter, but he never asked the former. And in fact, Jesus asked this question, what are you looking for? Three times. Three times over the course of the Gospel of John in really specific points in his ministry. The first one is when he's calling his disciples. He says, what are you looking for? And then the second one, when the guards come to get him in the garden, he looks at the guards and he says, what are you looking for? And then finally, after the resurrection, when Mary finds him at the tomb, he simply looks down at her and he says, what are you looking for? So there's an arc to that question, and it drives Jesus' story. What are you looking for? So three times, and that's significant because it turns out Jesus actually asked a bunch of questions. I did my research this week. In all four Gospels, Jesus asks a whopping 307 questions. 307 questions. We can tell this guy is kind of in to the questioning thing. And as any teacher in here knows, and there are a few, the part of a, part of a good teacher requires asking your students questions rather than just lecturing, and that's exactly Jesus' MO. Whenever he's asked a question, which is 183 times, we'll get real nerdy now, uh, 183 times, he would usually answer that question with a story, and this was far more common, he would usually just fire back a couple more questions. So you'd be like, Jesus, what is this? And he'd be like, well, what is this, this, and this? And you'd be like, oh man, now, now I'm the one doing the work. <laughs> um, and very rarely, very, very rarely did he actually literally answer the question. In fact, out of all of those 183 questions that he has asked, he literally gives an answer to three questions. Three. That's it. So that means, if we're tracking here, we got 307, right, that he asks. Yeah, there's a seven in there. 307 that he asks, and then three that he literally answers. That means for every answer that Jesus gives, he asks 100 more questions. I think that needs to give us pause. He's wanting, like, he's giving us that space, just like a good interviewer. He's empathetic towards us, and he wants to know, literally, what are you looking for? That's a really, really good question. It's a deep question. And if we wrestle with it enough, and we actually do the work to get to the bottom of this question, that's going to lead us into a space like this. Because if people are really, really searching for what they're looking for, it's often found in places like this. You find something else, and that kind of leads you, or a friend invites you, and then you kind of step into this church space with this driving question. What are you looking for? And it's, it's a brave thing and a hard thing to step into a community like this for the first time, especially with that question. You're holding this question rather fragilely, rather delicately, if you can remember the first time you walked into a church or a religious space, and you come in with the bravery, like, I'm taking this first step. What am I looking for? Coming with this question. And that's why it's so tragic when churches, literally, someone is coming in with all of them. They're like, basically, here's my heart. Like, I'm coming in. I'm super vulnerable. And then the church, like, they walk into this space, and then they recognize that maybe the church isn't as welcoming as it is, as it's supposed to be. Maybe my fragile question that I walked in here super vulnerable with, I just got super burned because I found out that I wasn't as welcomed as I thought I was. And sometimes we find this out years down the line. We think we're in this religious community, we're like, yeah, this is great. And then something really funky happens. And we go, oh, man, I knew it. 
I knew it was too good to be true. I can't actually serve here like I'm supposed to be able to. I can't actually get married here like I'm supposed to be able to. I can't actually do all of these different things that are so vitally important in the life of Jesus, and yet our churches don't really reflect that all the time. I want to focus on this, uh, this, this instance where Jesus actually answers one of those literal questions, because when the church messes up, and it's a lot, like, churches mess up. It's just, if you get a body of people in the room, like, someone's going to screw up. <laughs> so that happens a lot, but uh, I just want to show how, how Jesus cares so deeply for these communities, and he cares so deeply for the religious communities, and he does that in a way with these Pharisees that is so profound. So let's go to this scripture. Uh, this is out of Matthew 22, 35 through 40. So it says, uh, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So there's the question. And Jesus replies, and this is his direct response, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So this is a Pharisee who asked this question, this expert in the law. right? And being a Pharisee meant that these commandments were vitally, vitally important. This was the lifeblood of a Pharisee. Like, a Pharisee would spend hours a day sitting around a table with other Pharisees, basically hashing it out, debating, arguing over which commandment is more important. This is a real, like, everyday rabbinical practice. They would just sit in a room and argue it out, right? Like, this one is the most important, this one is the most important, this one is the most important. And what Jesus does is so caring in this moment, because he could have responded with another story or another question right back, but he realized in this instance with this person who spends all their day with this one question, I need to show him that he's asking the wrong question. What the most important commandment is not that important, but Jesus shows this level of care. Rather than Jesus saying, moo, unask that question, give me something better, he goes, Here's what it all boils down to. Here's what all of your law, that you love the law, you've studied it all your life. Here's what everything in the entire scripture, he says all the law and the prophets. That means both the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and all of the books with the prophets in them. Everything hangs on this, and that is to love God and love each other. Love God, love each other. So Jesus is literally walking up to the guy and saying, that's great. I'm glad you're super passionate about this. I love your love for the law. I love your love for God. But literally, you're asking the wrong question. You're spending your time in ways that you just actually shouldn't. Love God, love each other. It all boils down to this. Life is way bigger than that table where you're debating. Life is way bigger than those conversations you have with other rabbis. There's people to care for. There's people around you. Love God love each other. I think once we start asking better questions, wiser questions even, because wiser questions are going to elicit wiser answers, we're going to find that our kingdom view gets expanded, that this kingdom is way bigger than we ever knew, but that takes asking these good, good questions. Uh, so our neighbors down the street moved this week. Uh, it's one of those we live on 9th Street uh, in Santa Monica, like right off of California. There, actually, now you all know where I live. Uh, come, on, come on by. We live on 9th Street, right out like California. And uh, it's this neighborhood where there are a lot of really big apartment buildings, but there are also these little things I call up houses because, like, the house from up and all those skyscrapers and everything. But they're, like, these cute little craftsman homes that are, like, a gazillion dollars. Uh, and this is one of them. They, they were moving. And so 
Chelsea and I, they're having this like garage sale. And I moved around, I moved like seven times before I was 14. So that's like once every two years when I was a kid. So I like consider myself a bit of a garage sale aficionado because we used to throw a lot of them. But see, garage sales everywhere else on the planet are different than they are in Santa Monica. Santa Monica, it's not a garage sale. It's like an, an estate sale, or it's like Restoration Hardware came and did a pop-up. Like, it's not, it's really expensive stuff. And the case in point is that we're walking through, and, uh, and I don't know why this bugged me so much, but thank God it did, because it came back into my uh, sermon prep this week. This is a sandbox. Um, I'm gonna talk a lot about this sandbox. This sandbox was $300. <laughs> $300, and I'd love to point out that there's a little Zen guy here probably saying moo uh, to the sandbox. $300 for this hand-built, like, spiffy uh, sandbox, and that just unnerved me. I was like, you can't possibly, I ended up buying a bicycle there for $15. They wanted $15 for something I could literally ride around town on, and they wanted $300 for a box you put sand in. So anyway, it kind of just, it kind of irked me, tweaked me a little bit. And it was probably because I had to spend the rest of the week walking past this dang sandbox. So we have an action shot. Here's me walking past. There's a sign on that that says 200, so there's a steep discount there. Uh, and and it's just like, but why are they thinking they're going to get all this? And then it kept going down. The price kept following, and I was like, justice. <laughs> the sandbox. And then it was free. And the remarkable thing about that, by the way, if anyone wants a sandbox, it's still there. Like, nobody wanted this sandbox. And I was wondering, why is this bugging me so much? Why am I like tweaking on this idea of a sandbox? I didn't even, I even thought like, well, maybe I should take it and then I'll flip it. And I'm like, why am I so obsessed with the sandbox? I'm literally walking past <laughs> taking pictures of the sandbox. I'm a grown adult, it looked really weird. So anyway, I'm walking and I'm walking past the sandbox again. And then it occurred to me, this is why I'm so bothered by this. We're nine blocks from the beach. <laughs> Why would anyone want a sandbox nine blocks from the beach? If I'm a little kid and I'm sitting in this sandbox at grandma's house, I'm going like, are you serious? Like, there's a beach right there. Get me out of this thing and to the beach. We're going right now. I want the whole big thing. And then I had to like run home to my keyboard. Like, I'd find a piece of paper as fast as you possibly can because I realized that is such a profound metaphor for the church and for our faith. So often, we're stuck in our little sandbox. We build these really convenient, safe little boxes that we can play in and we can build our sandcastles in. But then there's something that happens and, and everything goes wrong and that little sandbox just isn't enough. And then somehow by asking good questions and by pursuing God with all of our hearts, we realize that there is an ocean there the whole time and that the sandcastles we can build on that beach are immensely greater than what we could ever accomplish in our little box. See, being a church for people who don't have figured out and being a church for everyone means that we're not allowed to put up walls like this. Oh, sandbox is gone. That's fine. We're not allowed to put up walls like that. We are actually... <laughs> Sandbox. We are actually called to step onto that beach, to go like, it's dangerous here. I could get smacked by a wave. The metaphor goes on and on and on. But we're called to bigger things. We're called to bigger questions. Love God, love each other. And what I want to ask of you guys this week, I want to challenge you to do, is literally ask that question that Jesus asked us three times. 
And understand that that's the question that Christ is calling us into. Christ is asking us that question every day. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Because that's a good question. That's a driving question. We need to declare moo to the other stuff. And we need to go towards this. What are you looking for? So uh, I want you to hold that question as you come uh, over here to do communion this morning. Uh, we have a lovely, fresh hollow loaf. Rip off a giant piece of this uh, and pop it in. This is, really, is Lee here? Where's Lee? Uh, one time I said that, and Lee ripped off this massive piece. And then I was like, and Lee will be up here to pray. So he was literally, <laughs> it was amazing. I was like, I've totally, I've trapped him. Um, you can rip off a giant piece of this, uh, dip it in there, and then just remember what God has done for you. Remember what Jesus has done for us, and he continues to do. Uh, and then this is your chance to be generous over here. This is our, like, uh, this is our everything. You can put your community cards in there, uh, especially if you're new here. Fill out your community card. We'd love to get in touch with you. Um, and prayer requests, all of that can all go in here. And then as well as your tithes and offerings, those can go in there as well. Uh, let me pray for us as we uh, prepare to ask good questions this week. God, uh, I'm so grateful for that dang sandbox. I'm so grateful that uh, you use metaphor and symbols in our everyday life that can just absolutely expand the way that we think and the way that we interact with each other. And God, I just pray for this church as we move forward. May we love you. May we love each other. Amen.